Okay, this morning we're continuing with our Kingdom of God series, uh, chapter 7, Seven Inevitable Institutions of Government. If you look on the backside, you will see the 15 chapter titles, and we are going to try to do each cha- each chapter in uh, less than eight weeks. Some of them I'm actually hoping to finish up chapter seven in about five weeks. And uh, this is week three of chapter seven. And the first half of, of chapter seven, chapter seven, A, one, two, and three, uh, is on the subject, the three-legged foundational stool of God's kingdom restoration plan. That's a lot, right? The, think, it, think it through. The three-legged stool, a three-legged stool, what happens if you cut one leg out? The stool falls over. The tri- a triangle is actually the most stable shape in the universe because any place you put three uh, points uh, always intersect one plane. Interesting that, that God created it that way since he is a triunity. He's a trinity. So um, we've uh, the first two messages, or the first two chapters, we looked at the primacy of the kingdom of God. In chapter 2, we looked at the kingdom of God defined. We spent a couple weeks on that. Uh, then we've been on major biblical things for quite a while. We've covered creation. and or No, I'm sorry. We've covered covenant and, and so forth. And uh, We've covered the fact that God has enemies. That is, there's two types of people in the earth or two people groups and uh, so forth. We've covered some major biblical things that we're going to need in order to go through our survey of the Old Testament in chapter 5. Uh, however, what happened was I just we had a week where I was so busy I couldn't get to uh, enough study to do the ones on creation, and I'm still studying those. So I decided to jump ahead to the one, chapter seven because frankly I could do that with the least amount of research and preparation time. Actually, Jason Hale gave me that idea. Thank you, Jason. So, um, as we go through this, I'm I'm not going to review much, but I'm just going to. Tell, tell us that in every culture in the history of the world, it's inevitable because God created it this way, there are seven institutions of government. There's never been a culture that hasn't had that. There's not, there never will be. They are individual government. If your mommy didn't have to wake you up to get here this morning, then you exercised self-government <laughs> to get here, right? Uh, and you grow in self-government uh, on some levels with, you know, even even non-Christians grow to some level of self-government. But true self-government can only be attained in Christ. And we spent two weeks on that. Uh, the family, nuclear and extended, religious institutions, even Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany had religious institutions. Uh, I don't want to go into that too much because I don't want to review too much. So... Uh, Educational systems we're going to look at in the second message today. Economic organizations and systems, monetary policy, etc. Media and social mores, and finally, civil government. Now, we made the point that humanistic man always wants to invert that order. Humanistic man, all ancient cultures of the world, Egypt, Mesopotamia, the uh, Hittites, The Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greek city-state, the Romans had a totalitarian type of government whereby they thought government was the salvation of man. 
Uh, Christianity reversed all that, although as Christianity has has been losing ground since the since uh, shortly after the Reformation with the beginning of the Enlightenment, as Christianity has been losing ground in Western culture, we have reverted more and more to statism. And so now we think uh, conservatism will save us or liberalism will save us or whatever. But whoever becomes your savior inevitably becomes your Lord and master. You cannot escape that. So if you look to government for solutions, government will also control you. So that is not necessarily a Christian way of thinking that we need better laws and more government. Because that will not change the heart of man. Now, all seven of these institutions of government fell in the earth when Adam and Eve fell. They came under the dominion of three insurmountable enemies that we all have, which include the power of iniquity or sin, which every person in this room, including myself, has a deep-seated problem. Part of the problem with Christianity in today is there's not much of a depth of the doctrine of sin. Most Christians think they're, well, I'm a pretty good person. I just hadn't fully dedicated myself to Christ yet or whatever. Most people don't have a very deep revelation of their of our own pride, of our selfish ambition, of our know-it-all spirit, of our tendency to lie, of our fear of man, and, and on and on. We just don't have a deep enough revelation of sin, and we don't see ourselves as dead in our trespasses and sins, and Christ rescued us. That's why there's actually... Uh, what they call a free will view of salvation. And that's why there's what they, uh, you know, the whole idea that we can help ourselves and so forth. Uh, God rescued you. Lots of scriptures say that when you're dead, you're dead. You can't raise yourself from the dead. God raises you from the dead in the gospel. So then... Uh, of course, there's also the power of the present evil age or the world system, something very underestimated in the church today. And finally, there's Satan, his fallen angels and demons, which we deal with theoretically, but very few churches uh, do much with binding spirits in the heavenly places nor or casting out demons on a regular basis. However, Jesus lived in a culture way more godly than ours by any way you want to look at it and measure it. Any kind of biblical standard you would use, the culture Jesus invaded was much more godly than our culture, and he spent about a third of his ministry casting out demons. So either he was accommodating his, himself to the psychological backwardness of his day, and we've all evolved from there, or some sort of nonsense like that, or we're really missing a picture of authentic Christianity. And if you look at the word sozo, which is the Greek for saved, and the noun soteria, which is the noun for saved, salvation means complete rescue, complete deliverance from all the power of evil, and that includes demonic spirits. And it, it means you could not save yourself. That's what the word means. You, you have no, uh, nothing in, in you that inclines you toward God. Part of our sin nature is there's none who seeks God, no, not one. Together they've turned aside. No one can come lest the Father draws him. And then we looked at, uh, in detail, uh, five things about, uh, about self-government and where it begins. 
Uh, Colossians 1, he rescued us or delivered us. Uh, English, I gave you the NASB and the ESV. About 50% of English translations use the word rescue, 50% delivered uh, us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Galatians 1.4 says that Christ died in order to rescue. Half the translations say rescue, have to say, say deliver, because that Greek word could be either. It means both. And it, it, it implies that it's totally the work of God. He, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. The, so the Bible is saying you can't even rescue yourself from the world and from worldliness. It's interesting how many exhortations, 1 John 2, etc., James 4, uh, do you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Uh, the Bible is full of exhortations to Christians not to be enslaved to worldliness. It's not just the flesh that's your enemy. So we looked at how individual government grows. If you remember when Paul was before King Agrippa, he spoke to him about uh, the, the mystery of the kingdom of God and, and, and self-control. Isn't it interesting that he concluded in part of his gospel message uh, that one of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control? Because what he's saying is, apart from Christ, you cannot exercise self-control. Now, many a person can overcome this or that habit, but you can't, as a general rule, exercise a Christ-centered self-control. You can't even do it for the right motives outside of Christ. And one of the, one of the marks of Christian maturity and one of the marks of fruitfulness is increasing self-discipline in uh, every area of our life, from how we manage our money to our sleep to our, to our appetites to uh, our study habits, uh, what have you. Uh, growing self-control is, is a, a mark of the Spirit of God bearing fruit in your life, which is progressive. So how does this start? Uh, we looked at, it begins with the effectual calling of the gospel. I can't develop that. But, God, you know, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And uh, he, comes look, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He comes looking for you. Uh, it progresses through what's called regeneration or the new birth and conversion. Those are separate things. Ideally, theologically, when you study it in systematic theology, they're supposed to happen bang, bang. Due to the nature of our gospel in America today, most people don't experience it that way. Most people have their spirit quickened and their conversion process may be a year or two or three coming after that. Uh, and Part of that is because what you're being converted to is, kind of, is the antinomian gospel of American Christianity where there's no, not much content to what, so it's just, you're just, you get a quickening feeling and a sense of more life in God and more spiritual sensitivity, but you don't really, uh, that doesn't really mean much in any practical sense because of the theologies that, that rule the day. And we'll look at those theologies when we get to... Uh, Chapter 12, current concepts that conceal the kingdom of God uh, that, are, that are rampant in the church today. But conversion uh, includes two basic ingredients. One is uh, repentance, which, you know, in our teaching on repentance, we have eight statements about repentance that fully define it. But repent, the eighth is the most important. Repentance is not primarily turning away from, as we think of it, but it's a primarily a turning a toward, a seeking, following, trusting, obeying God. That's why repent is always listed before believe 
It always says repent and believe. Because when you repent, it opens the door of your heart for God to give you faith. Jesus said, if anyone's willing to do my will, he'll know the teaching. Biblical faith is not a hoping so or a leap of faith. It's a knowing that you know because because a sovereign God capable of doing so has revealed it to you in such a way that you know that you know it. One of the amazing things about our journey in Christ is that we know truly and accurately things like the scriptures are the inerrant word of God, Jesus Christ is Lord, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three persons in one being. We know these things for certain, but we do not know them exhaustively. We always are growing in the knowledge of God. We see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. But we do know accurately, even though we don't know exhaustively. And the reason we know accurately is God is able to reveal himself. And he's done so in first and foremost in Christ, and secondly, who's called the living word of God, and secondly, in the written word of God. Most Christians get that kind of backward today. But you, if you want to know the living word of God, you, you will find him in, in uh, disciplined, diligent, ongoing, regular seeking of him in the written word of God, the scriptures. Then regeneration and conversion uh, per, eventually progress to sanctification and maturation. We mature in the things of the Lord. And uh, we do so by use, unwrapping the three, three free tools of grace. Now, that's the review of the last two weeks. Now, I've got about 30 minutes to get into this week's stuff, so hopefully it will be okay. Uh, turn over the page, and we're going to look at the second leg of the stool. Uh, please get the, the, if you haven't listened to the audios from the last two weeks, please get them, because they really contain uh, some, some very important elements of a more biblical view of the gospel than what we have in America today. Okay, next, the family is the second leg of the stool. Now, uh, I wish more people were here to hear, hear this, uh, but the family is God's basic building block of society. We are going to look in uh, chapter 7b2. Next week, we're going to look at economic institutions, economic organizations, and uh, our vocational calling and monetary policy as, as uh, the fifth unit of government. But I heard my wife, Catherine, talking with James Davis in the pews just before the service, and she was talking about how the family is the basic economic unit of society, which is a very biblically correct, of course. And uh, uh, modern economics tends to look at the state, but the word oikonomos comes from two words, namos being the law of or the government of, management of, oikos, household. And economics was originally the study of the management of households because households, extended households, families are the basic economic unit. And if you want to see a way that that worked historically and traditionally, get to know the Amish or the Mennonites. They still operate that way. In our business, we finance Amish and Mennonite customers and it's ironic to us that when we talk to them about the name of their business, they always say, 
Well, and do they have a business checking account? Well, <laughs> they don't think of themselves as a business, but in their, in, on their property, they have a sawmill and they uh, nail and ship pallets and they have chickens that they raise eggs and sell some of the eggs to nearby neighbors and so forth. And they have hay that they sell and, uh, uh, you know, they make birdhouses and sell them or whatever. They use almost every Amish family has five or six micro enterprises going on in, on their property. Uh, I even buy my jellies because I like uh, these jellies that are sugar free and they, they're sweetened with the fruit juice uh, and so forth. And I go all the way up to Bell Fountain to this Amish family that has like five or seven businesses on their property, including a big jelly operation. And they actually employ uh, six, eight, ten people in the in the neighborhood to make their, the jellies. And uh, so uh, in biblical times and in biblical thinking, the family is the basic unit of society and economics. And under understanding and restoring the family is the next is the is is part of the three legged stool. We the world will continue to grow dark as modern Christianity began to prophesy and therefore began to reap. Uh, beginning around the 1890s, the world will continue to grow dark. A Christian view of be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, meaning the, the enemies of God are going to come under the feet, the body of Christ. Uh, a bit, it'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. A biblical view that we are going to be salt and light in the kingdom of God is going to advance and progress and fill the earth with God's glory where there will be true biblical community style churches in every village and far, farm country or whatever in the, in the earth. A true biblical view of that requires restoration of the family. Now, we're going to work a little bit backward here today. It's ironic to me that sometimes the people who need to hear these messages the most are always the ones missing. It's one reason we do the podcast and we appeal to them. You know, I'd encourage you to learn to get to a place where you don't miss due to spiritual warfare. You miss if it's God's will. Uh, that most people, uh, that would really help you to get to that place. We're going to work a little bit backward, and we're going to say this. Uh, I want to give us one little snapshot of history. Now, the family has been under attack, really, since uh, Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> uh, when the, when uh, Adam's, uh, Eve said, well, Adam first said, the woman, he first blamed it on his wife, then he thought better of it and, and said that thou hast given me, and he blamed it on the Lord himself. Uh, if you hadn't given me that woman in the first place, this mess wouldn't have happened. And the woman blamed it on the serpent. Uh, she preceded Flip Wilson. He was a comedian who said the devil made me do it in his comedy back in the 70s. She was way ahead of Flip Wilson. And uh, <laughs> she said the devil made me do it. And uh, the family's been under attack with blame shifting and all sorts of things to, to break it down and divide it ever since. However, I want to I just focus on one particular uh, one particular escalation of that battle in our culture, in America. In the 60s, we had what was called the sexual revolution. 
Now, we could go back and understand how the Christian underpinnings of, of, uh, of American culture had been declining since the Civil War, or we could go back and actually see how they were declining since the Great Awakening 20 years before our War for Independence. But they, the Christian underpinnings of, of, our, of our culture have been gradually declining. And by the 60s, we kind of reached a t- time where almost everything we were doing was just out of uh, inertia of tradition and not out of conviction. And so the sexual revolution said, hey, wait a minute. Why should we wait till marriage to, to have sex? Basically, I want to have sex where I want. Remember, we've been talking about the nature of the flesh in our day and the nature of what people think is freedom. If you want to ever lead anyone to Christ in our day, you're going to have to understand our culture. And our culture believes that freedom is the ability to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and nobody has a word to say about it. That's what they think is freedom, which leads to what the Bible calls the ultimate bondage because you become a slave of your appetites, your fears, your your lust, your pride, etc. And... Uh, you become the ultimate type of slave, and the Lord sets you free to, to actually be in harmony with the nature of how he created you when he recreates you in Christ. Uh, that's part of the gospel. And so um, the sexual revolution basically said, I want to have sex how I want to have sex, with whom I want to have sex, whenever I want to have sex. My brother was a, was a uh, great proponent of such and a college professor, and among the people who, uh, he, he was one of the major contributors to a thing called the Encyclopedia of Sex. There's a plaque to his honor at Bowling Green State University with a tree in his name and so forth because of his famous research in this field. And the people of his field, I, I knew a lot of his friends, they basically were advocates of this doctrine. You sh- should have sex with a telephone pole if you feel like it as long as you're not hurting the telephone pole (laughs) and it's mutually consensual. I mean, zebras, it doesn't matter. And that's really kind of like if you, if you actually study anything about the culture of pornography, one of the fastest growing areas of pornography besides child pornography, how more perverted could you get is bestiality. And so the sexual revolution was all about, I want to have sex, how I want to have sex, with whom I want to have sex, whenever I want to have sex, and I don't want any boundaries. And to do that, you have to first dismiss God. And you have to dismiss accountability to God. And God's word has to become culturally irrelevant or irrelevant and from any number of other attacks upon it. Now, that led to, in 1971, a change uh, beginning in in federal and state uh, divorce laws where divorce became an easy thing. If you read a theologian and and, uh, Bible scholar and pastor and teacher named Tim Keller, who's uh, one of the few voices out there that's really worth reading almost anything he says, um, almost any book he has, uh, he basically... uh, says says this about the culture of divorce. Almost everyone has come to a place where they believe divorce ought to be easy and it ought to be quick and you ought to get out of it with as least economic damage as possible. Because we're thinking in terms of my temporary right now happiness. 
Our culture has been totally brainwashed. The world system, remember, is one of our enemies, and we've totally been brainwashed to believe that we ought to act on our best interest to make us happy and us happy as we perceive it now. There's lots of problems with that from a Christian point of view. First of all, we doubt a Christian is one who gives way on their perceptions to God's word, uh, for, for one thing, and, and secondly, takes up their cross, denies their self. They overcome the, the enemy because they did not love their life even to the death. And we don't put a high value on happiness that, as a Christian. I, if people ask me, am I happy sometimes, I go, I don't know. Uh, I, I, tried, I gave up thinking about that. What's the point? Uh, am I doing, am I pleasing God? Am I doing the will of God? I guess I'm happy because I delight to do thy will, O Lord. That's what God put in you when you were reborn. He put in you a spirit that says, I delight to do your will, O God. And the more you center in on that in sanctification and maturation, the more you'll be happy. But if you pursue happiness as any kind of end in itself, the more it will elude you. So, um, with that whole cultural revolution came easy divorce. Tim Keller makes the point that actually if you think are more concerned about the welfare of children, then you'll make divorce hard. If you're more concerned about the, the welfare of adult individuals here now and now and their perception of their happiness, then you'll make divorce easy. Um, it is quickly, it has always been one of the financial rules that you give in financial counseling that divorce is the single worst economic uh, occurrence that can happen to a person. Next to bankruptcy, I suppose. The, the point being that divorce will ruin your credit, it'll ruin your finances, it'll ruin your savings, it'll ruin everything financially. Now, we're we are actually passing more and more laws about no fault divorces and no contest divorces and so forth to try to make that not true. Because people want their divorce when they want it, how they want it, for whatever reasons they want. And uh, they could care less how that impacts their children or future generate or their grandchildren. So working back from that, I want to I want to talk to us about three things that we that we as the church need to do in the world post 1960s. Of course, now we're into the uh, those of you who are under 31 or so are called the millennial generation, uh, and this is important. First Chronicles 12:32, by the way, says talks about the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, and that's really something we're lacking today at, at times. But it's just, this, this is the first thing I want to say. God will bring us many people into Grace Christian Fellowship that are in the middle of a divorce and looking, and, and that is what, in fact, causes them to become poor in spirit because you can't be, seek, blessed are the poor in spirit for those is the kingdom of God. People don't come to God lest somehow God opens their eyes to see their spiritual poverty first. Now, some people, God does that easy. They just go, man, my life has no meaning or purpose. They turn, they turn to God. Other people can be the worst kinds of drunks, the worst kinds of heroin addicts. You, you would say, man, when is this person going to bottom out? And they still can't see 
they still think they're better off driving the car than letting God drive. And that every fallen man basically wants to drive the car. And they perceive in their spirit that if I acknowledge the existence of God and if I come to Christ, that he's going to be Lord, I'm not going to be Lord anymore. That's the bottom line. So what, one of the things we need to understand is God is going to bring this church, already has brought us some that are in the process of divorce or already divorced. Now, one thing that you really got to get clear if you're going to work according to God's program and God's word is I, you cannot judge or condemn anyone for what happened to them when they lived in darkness. Because you know what? People who are lost are lost. And if their lostness happens to cause them to rob banks or uh, lie or be braggadocious in their sports and maybe they're a great athlete, but it's all about ego and pride and it's in your face and no, no sportsmanship or whatever, whatever, whatever path their iniquities taking them on, we, we always have this moralizing. They, they say that modern Christianity is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And we all, I always hear this from Christians. Well, I don't talk to my brother anymore because he ran off with this woman and, and he's a drunkard and so forth. And, and I say that's precisely why your brother needs you to keep the lines of communication open and to do so in a way that's non-judgmental, that says, there but by the grace of God go I, and that makes it clear that you don't see yourself as anything better, you just see yourself as having been rescued. And that's why you repented, and that's why you changed, and that's why your life is more godly, and that's why your life is working better. And you use the fact that it's working better as a sales point, you might say, to their lostness, to say, I just, I, I don't judge what you're doing. I just want you to have what God wants you to have. He came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And what robs it, the thief comes only to kill and rob and destroy. What robs you of abundant life is not doing it God's way. Not doing it God's way. I always tell my sinner friends, I love you so much that I'm praying that God will make you perfectly miserable in your sin. You're probably not yet perfectly miserable. You're just a little miserable. And I love you so much, I'm hoping you'll become even more miserable <laughs> uh, because I love you. <laughs> and uh, I tell that to, to uh, anybody. I, that, that's really what I want for myself. I want to only find my life in Christ. So one of the things we need to understand is God will bring people into our church that are already divorced. My, one of my visions is to have a divorce recovery group in our church, but to have it be much more biblical than, you know, the, originally the 12 steps were a very biblical thing, and they're kind of degenerating a little bit. But um, really, we want to work. One of the ways you work with divorced people is to, is to help them build character in Christ and to help them see you will always be your son and daughter's father or mother, whatever the case may be. And every seed brings forth its own kind, and it doesn't matter if you're only going to get to see them uh, every weekend or every other weekend or something like that. The, the, the more godly, mature, sanctified, wise, full, fill, flow, filling with God's spirit person you become, the more hope you're giving their life. Every seed brings forth its own kind, and whoever you hang around will, around will become like you. As a Christian, you need to ask yourself, do I want people to become like us? 
to become like me? Do I really feel like come to our church? I th sometimes think people are, you know, the, the part of the culture of the devil and and is that I think a lot of Christians are ashamed of who they are, and, and and you wouldn't want to come to our poor little church, would you? And you know what? <laughs> you, you, as a Christian, you should be able to say, "Listen, First uh, John five nineteen, the the we know where of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If you want to see how to live life, come to our church. If you want to find that which is life indeed." Well, I can see I'm going to have trouble getting into the church on this one, so I'm going to move on. Do you understand that we will, God will bring us many a person that is divorced? First thing we want to, the more sanctified, mature, and put back, the more they get inner healing, the more they get deliverance from demons, the more they get become disciples of God's word and become scholars of his word, the more their character has changed, the more their work ethic improves, their financial management skills, all the things that come with salvation that's the best thing they can do for their former spouse and especially for their children. Second thing, uh, you know, we want to look at is uh, encouraging people not to become what they call serial marriage people. Uh, serial marriage is becoming a part of the, you know, there's this whole thing called the revolt against maturity that's going on, or you read Diane West's book, The Death of the Grown-Up. But one of the things that's happening is most people who are 18 to 35 have the maturity of what people used to have in fifth and sixth and seventh grade. So they actually kind of a, go into marriage kind of with the emotional maturity of what people used to go steady and give whatever they call those ID bracelets or a ring to their girlfriend back in seventh grade. So people are entering marriage with that kind of ideas about their, uh, that kind of level of, of emotional maturity. And so uh, one of the best things you can do for divorced people is just ask them not to remarry and not to court till they get a little healing and maturity and depth in the things of the Lord so that they don't get married two and three and four times. I don't believe that a person who is divorced could never get remarried. God makes all things new. He doesn't make all new things. But I believe you should go through a, a process of, of restoration, healing, maturation, becoming more responsible. You should see all the things clearly that you did to contribute to the situation, and you should be delivered from those things in your character before you enter it again. I was pleased to marry such a couple uh, who are now have grandkids and wonderful marriage, and they've always had marriage. They were both Air Force officers, and they neither one were Christians when they got divorced, and they came to Christ, and they got discipled, and and they got a certain level of maturity. And uh, it was wonderful to remarry them. And, you know, God does not necessarily want a divorced person to live a celibate uh, life of a eunuch the rest of their life. Uh, but he doesn't want them to just enter marriage foolishly again. Second way we can help uh, is called prevention in the sense that uh, often God will bring us people who are married, who really have nowhere near the maturity level they need to get married. Um, and we help them grow in Christ in such a way that their marriage itself becomes more mature. I always use this story, you know, Colossians 1, that Jesus Christ is before all things. In him, all things hold together. And basically, I'd say this, God is the head, and uh, it, here's you and your spouse, 
if you journey towards Christ, you will have much more likelihood of, of your marriage holding together because a cord of three strands is not quickly torn asunder. If you don't journey towards Christ, you will have little chance of making a good marriage. So we can work preventively. Um, I saw Davian and Taylor come in, but I think they're both still in the back. But, and I, I, wanna, I just wanna say this uh, in publicly. Um, when I married Davian and Taylor, uh, a little over a year ago, it was one of the few weddings I've ever done. You know, I, by the way, in case you don't know this, my wife and I have been discipling people and getting them prepared for marriage since the 1970s, and no one we've married has ever been divorced. And that has to do only with the preparation because most of those people have gone on to serve the Lord all over the world. And we, you know, the only contact, it was not because of our ongoing ministry in their life or anything like that, or any kind of control or anything. Most of those people, we hear from them with a Christmas card and some, some of them we've reconnected with on Facebook. And, you know, they live all over the world. But, uh, but it's because of the next point we're going to make. But in terms of uh, prevention, you know, when, uh, when Davion and Taylor got married, honestly, I was like, wow, this is one of the few that I, I know it's the right thing to marry them, but I don't think they're mature enough to get married. Uh, last Sunday night, we spent four hours at their house, and how much they've grown and matured and become Christ-like is just astounding. Uh, it, it was astounding. The, the peace of God's Holy Spirit was there on the whole evening. I actually spent Friday night with them since we had not Friday night fellowship at their house also, but without Catherine this time. And, you know, they've, they've taken advantage of marriage work courses. They've studied marriage. They've done all kind of things to, uh, to mature who they are in, in the things of God. And they have an amazing marriage, and they're doing one of the best jobs I've ever seen of raising a kid. Israel is full of, she gets attention, she gets love, she's developmentally ahead of, of, of stages, and she's so unlike all the lost, troubled, brat-type kids that, that, are, that, you're, that we're struggling with in our culture. Man, the other night we were talking about certain things, and they asked her to go into her room, and she obeyed, like, without having to get a spanking or anything. So. And you can see the joy, the security, the knowing who she is. The, you know, her vocabulary is, is quite, quite good for a, for a kid that's not even three yet, etc. So prevention is what I mean by that is God will bring us couples that are already married that probably aren't near, anywhere near being mature enough to be married. And that's okay. And we can work with that. But the, the, I'm working backwards here. The best way is what I would call initiation. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed to, is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The best way, what my wife and I have pursued 90% of the time since the 70s, is to only let honorable people enter the institution in the first place. We strongly encourage people who aren't that emotionally or relationally mature Focus on that. If you really give focus to growing up in the Lord, you can usually grow up in the Lord in one, two, or three years, depending on how troubled you were. We drag it out to seven, 10, and 15 years, but we don't need to. Get discipled. Study hard. Uh, put yourself in a context of have a job. Uh, there's certain things that work does for your character and so forth. But uh, 
you know, cut yourself off from occultic and don't be involved in occultic music or astrology or witchcraft or any of the kind of stuff that keeps you from getting started in Christ. But people can mature in a short amount of time if they're sanctified to Christ. And they can get relational kinds of maturity that will that are necessary to because what you have to get to is you have to get to a place where you can stay sexually faithful. That's one of the three reasons marriages break up is sexual infidelity. You've got to have some character in that area before you start courting. You've got to get to where you're economically faithful, where you keep a job, you have a vocation, you pay your bills on time, you're not in debt, you have savings. Some people can keep a job really well, but they always spend too much. You know, that you're faithful in tithes, that you pay your rent on time, that you, you know, maintain your car and you don't overshoot with things like cars or, or, or um, other kinds of amenities. Third, you know, and that's a part of growing up. I never worry too much when a 19-year-old kid buys a car that's kind of stupid because it's too much for them. But I start worrying if they're 23, 25, and 27 and they do that a second time. Buy a beater car that's faithful. <laughs> get a, that's why you get Hondas and Toyotas and things like that. Buy a car that's going to last for a couple decades, <laughs> you know, so that you're driving it when your hair turns gray and when you don't have any hair like me. Um, that's the second economic problems. But third, and most importantly, is relational uh, maturity. People who can't communicate, who can't express their feelings, who don't let you know when they're going to be late or what, don't really let you know what they're thinking about. Uh, we have a thing we call, teach called the shootout principle. And we're not going to go into that right now because I'm out of time for today. But you, you, you have to become a person who lives the shootout principle. I'm still amazed at how many times people tell me about problems with someone else in the church that they have no business telling me. I'm like, did you talk to them first? Did you try? Jesus told us to go to, to them. You know what? Tell me your sins. Don't tell me your friend's sins. <laughs> really? It's amazing to me. Uh, you are not starting to mature until you walk in the light about your stuff with who you're supposed to walk in the light with. And believe me, in marriage, you have to do that. If you're some sort of mysterious unknown entity, don't get married. If you're a person who's all the cards are on the table, you know, what motivates me, what, what I, everything, then you're probably ready to start living the shootout principle. And if you can't live with, uh, the reason I favor single brothers households, and if you can't live with three people of the same sex successfully, you probably can't live with someone of the opposite sex at all. Because people who are opposites just think differently. And God has a way of bringing opposites together in marriage. So the final way we can honor marriage is to, um, is to it's what I call initiation, is to make sure people are mature. Now with that, I also want to say that in Christ... Part of the reason to have a healthy marriage and raise healthy children and to really know a lot about that. If you're single, I encourage you to start with Tim Keller's book on marriage. Read some books about marriage if you think you might ever get married. 
you know, Christians just don't read enough in our culture. Secondly, you know, get read some books on finances and vocation. Start with Tim Keller's book called Every Good Endeavor. Uh, there used to be a guy named, um, he, the guy who died that was the financial guru that's better than Dave Ramsey. So Larry Burkett. There's a guy named Larry Burkett. If you're not a great at managing your finances, write down Larry Burkett and Google him on the internet and find some of his books and stuff. Um, Etc. But part of this is also, I want you to, I want you to make one last point, and then we got to end because I'm actually two minutes past my time. You got to think generationally. Part of the reason for taking the time now, whether you can get have faith for it, you know, we so many people were supposed to walk by faith, not by sight, but almost everyone I know walks by sight more than they walk by faith, and that's discouraging at times. Think about your grandchildren before you start courting. Because the goal of being a Christian is to generationally get much of the stuff that held your parents back, whether they were Christian or not, they had generational stuff that wasn't mature, perfect, right, whatever. You wanna go past them. And you want to go past them far enough and create enough spiritual momentum that you hand that momentum off to your children. You know, I have a son-in-law and I have a son that have, in many cases, better character than me, better wisdom, better understanding, better knowledge, and I'm not threatened by that in the least. Sometimes I don't totally understand what they see, and sometimes I have to get discipled by them now, but I I hope they have the same problem with their children. That's what you're praying for. I hope their sons grow up to be so wise in the Lord that they're instructing me when I'm 80 and they're 20. Amen. Amen.